All right, this is our third message in this Advent series, Spectacular Sons Born to Save the World. We're going to be looking at Solomon this morning. So if you could turn with me to 1 Chronicles 22, 9 through 10. As we're going through the message today, just, just know that this is our base passage, but we're going to be looking at lots of other places. So 1 Chronicles 22, 9 through 10. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, as we hear this message from your word today, we pray that the message would not be given in plausible words of wisdom, but that we would hear it to be a demonstration of the spirit and of power, that our faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but entirely in the power of God. We pray these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. So during this Advent season, as we remember the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world, we've been examining the lives of other spectacular sons who were born to save the world. God's first promise, of course, we've seen this, is from Genesis 3.15, that an offspring of the woman, a son, would come and crush the serpent's head. And ever since that first promise, God's people have been looking for this one son to deliver them. And many forerunners have come into the world, other spectacular sons who foreshadow what this one son would be like. So we've seen Moses, who taught the whole world what God was like by laying the foundation of Scripture. So Moses represented Christ's prophetic office. We've seen Isaac, how this was the only son of Abraham, the beloved son, and he was given as a human sacrifice in order to appease the wrath of God towards sin. Isaac represented Christ's priestly office. And this morning, we're looking at Solomon, the greatest monarch ever to live in all of the ancient world, and he foreshadows Christ's kingly office. Loved ones, this is who was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, not merely a prophet, not merely a priest, but a king. In fact, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Um, the son who was sent to rule not only heaven, but all of earth. Question 26 of the Shorter Catechism asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Answer, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, 
and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So let's see how Solomon pointed to this true and better king. Our outline is the same that we've seen the last three weeks. So we're going to look at first the spectacular birth of Solomon, then the spectacular biography of Solomon, and then the true and better Solomon. So let's begin. So we left off with Moses last week. What happened between him and Solomon? Well, after Moses died, Joshua, the son of Nun, another spectacular son, um, took command of Israel, Deuteronomy 34.9. And he led them into the promised land, and he defeated army after army in the land of Canaan, and the people of Israel received their allotted land from the Lord. Enter the book of Judges. We discover that the next generation did not know the Lord, Judges 2.10. And furthermore, they didn't complete the conquest of the Canaanites in the land, and so there were still inhabitants that eventually led Israel into idolatry and sin, Judges 1.27. And as a result, Israel sinned by following other gods. And throughout the book of Judges, we see this vicious cycle, and it repeats seven times. First, Israel rebels against God by worshiping idols. Secondly, God sends enemies against them to punish them. Thirdly, Israel cries out in repentance to the Lord. Fourthly, God raises up judges to rescue them. Fifthly, Israel is restored to prosperity. And then the cycle starts all over again. And the last official judge was Samuel. And we read about his life in the books after his name. And during his lifetime, Israel rebels again. But this time, they rebel by crying out for a king. We want a king like the other nations have a king, 1 Samuel 8. So God grants them this desire, and the first king that comes is King Saul. He did not follow the Lord. But after him, God found a man after his own heart, David, who was anointed to be king. And this was the king who wrote a good majority of the Psalms. And it was this king who fathered Solomon. Let's look again at 1 Chronicles 22.9. This is what God told David about this son. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. Now, this is an absolutely spectacular promise because David was not a man of rest. He had violence surrounding his life, um, almost his, his entire life. First, he was on the run as a commander of Saul's army from Saul himself, who out of jealousy wanted to murder him, and he tried to multiple times. Then when David finally became king, He spent the good part of his reign fighting off those Canaanites that were still in the land and defending the land from foreign enemies. But his son, Solomon, verse 9 says, would be a man of rest. King Solomon's reign was marked by peace, peace in our time. And King Solomon's name actually means peace. Solomon means peace. It was God himself who gave us this name to signify that Solomon's reign would be peace. Halfway through verse 9, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. 
In other words, God was telling David that Solomon would be born a prince of peace. So how was this spectacular son born? Well, in the midst of spectacular sin. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 12, and just keep your, your finger there for a second. We'll look at the verse in a moment. But do you know who Solomon's mother was? It was Bathsheba. Well, who was Bathsheba? Well, Bathsheba was married to Uriah the Hittite, and David saw her, lusted after her, seduced her, and stole her from another man and got her pregnant. And then David conspired and conspired and conspired to try to hide his sin. First, he got Uriah drunk, who was on leave from war, so that he would go home and and sleep with Bathsheba. But that didn't work. So David sent back Uriah to the army with a letter in his hand instructing Joab to make sure that he died in battle. Joab Being a shrewd and vicious man, did the dirty deed, and Uriah was slain. So David, this man after God's own heart, committed adultery, conspiracy, and murder. Uriah's mom and dad were robbed of their son. Bathsheba was robbed of her husband. The army was robbed of a mighty man and a loyal soldier. And God's name was blasphemed. It was trampled in the mud. And David covered it all up. And several months later, God sent Nathan the prophet. He announced judgment against David. He says in 2 Samuel 12, look at verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And as a result, God told David that the sword would never leave his family and that that child that Bathsheba was carrying would die. This is that moment in the story where you, you just see that David's life is ruined. He not only ruined the lives of other people, but he ruined his own life. There was no salvaging it. There's no human remedy. There's no hope for recovery. And this was so public. I mean, we've been hit with headlines over the last several years of villains like Jeffrey Epstein and the like. David was worse than that. David abused his power, he defamed the Lord, and now he was caught, and the whole world know it. I mean, can you imagine the suicidal despair that David felt? What did David do? Well, he did the only thing that sinners can do. This is Psalm 51. He cries out to the Lord, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions and cleanse me from my sin. And Nathan tells him in verse 13, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And and we should be stunned by this answer from Nathan because that is not how the story should go. How can God put away his sin? 
through a son. After the death of their first child, God gave David and Bathsheba another son. Look at verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. They called his name Solomon. They called his name Peace, and the Lord loved him. David absolutely ruined his life, and at that very moment, God sent him a son named Peace. Now, Solomon did not take away David's sin, but don't you see that he points to another son who would? Loved ones, the scandalous birth of Solomon points to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you you ruined your life before? Have you lay in the ruins of your own choices, realizing what you've done and how you can't go back, you can't turn that corner, you can't take those choices back? I have. Multiple times. Multiple times I've, I've ruined my life. And we don't have to sin like David did at all to ruin our life. Any one sin is a life destroyer. Ezekiel 18.20 says, the soul who sins will die. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Children, boys and girls, before you even leave your home from your parents, you've already ruined your life. The first time you worship another God, the first time that you didn't obey your mother and father, the first time that you lied, you've ruined your life. That's what sin does. And what does God do? He sends a son into the world. He sends a son to the world named Peace, a descendant of Solomon. Matthew 121, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. God named Jesus just like he named Solomon. And what does Jesus' name mean? It means he will save his people from their sins. That's the answer to David's ruined life, to your ruined life, to my ruined life. Jesus was the Savior born at just the right time when all hope was lost, and his name means salvation from sin, salvation from all of our guilt, salvation from those most shameful things that we have committed, salvation from our sorrow, salvation from all those things that we don't want anybody to know about. Salvation from all fear and judgment, from death, from hell, from the wrath of God itself. Salvation is what Jesus' name means. He's the true Prince of Peace. Is He your Savior? Have you believed upon the name of this spectacular Son? John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Oh, dear congregation, that's what Advent is all about. That's why we're celebrating is that a son was born for us just when hope was lost, just when sin had destroyed our lives. God gave us a son, a prince of peace, who alone could save us. So let's look then at the spectacular biography of Solomon. 
And I want to take a survey of Solomon's life. You might not be able to follow along with all of these scriptures, but if you get the the subtitles, you'll, you'll get it. So let's consider five distinctives of Solomon's reign and how they foreshadow Christ's reign. Five distinctives of Solomon's reign. Distinctive number one is Solomon ushered in universal peace. Solomon ushered in universal peace. It's not just that his name was peace. It's what our text says, 1 Chronicles 22.9, I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. For nearly 40 years, that's how long Solomon reigned, there was shalom, there was peace in Israel. There was no war for 40 years. 1 Kings 4.25, and Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Dan is the northernmost city, Beersheba is the southernmost city, and so it's saying the whole empire was shrouded in peace. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. No king, no nation has ever experienced what Solomon and Israel experienced during this golden age in the Old Testament. And oh, how this points to a greater peace when King Jesus came into the world and and did his saving work. He brought us peace, not merely with man. That's all that Solomon could accomplish. But Jesus brought us peace with God, with God Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh the, oh, the vastness of this peace. You can be in distress all your life long. From birth to death, you, you can live a sorrowful life. You can suffer a martyr, martyr's death. All of your friends can betray you. You can have sorrows like sea billows roll. But if you have Christ, you have a peace that passes all understanding. Solomon's peace extended only from Dan to Beersheba, but Jesus' peace will one day cover the earth. Can you imagine it? Zechariah 9.10, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. Solomon's peace only lasted 40 years, but Jesus' peace is from everlasting to everlasting, world without end. Secondly, Solomon had incomparable wisdom. Solomon had incomparable wisdom. Early in Solomon's reign, God met with him in a dream, and he said, ask what I shall give you, 1 Kings 3, 5. So children, boys and girls, what did Solomon ask for? What would you have asked for? God comes to you and he's saying, I'll give you whatever you want. What would you have asked for? What did Solomon ask for? For wisdom. Wisdom to rule this kingdom that you have given me. 1 Kings 429, God granted him that desire, and it says that Solomon had wisdom and understanding that were beyond measure, like sand on the seashore. 
You know, Solomon had a great many inventions. The temple itself and how it was put together, the stones, you couldn't even put a knife between those stones, and that's before modern machinery. Spurgeon says of Solomon's inventions, today we are a set of savages that are just beginning to learn something. But Solomon knew and invented things which we shall perhaps rediscover in 500 years' time. Can you imagine Solomon watching down from heaven and we invent something? Hey, look at this great thing. And Solomon's like, yeah, I already did that. He could solve unsolvable dilemmas that no one else could. Recall the story of the two prostitutes fighting over the one son left alive. 1 Kings 3, 16 through 28. No one in the history of the world has ever been wiser than Solomon. But oh, how Christ's wisdom far exceeds the wisdom of Solomon. Jesus actually said of himself in Matthew 12, 42, that something greater than Solomon is here. Solomon only received a portion of the wisdom of God, but Jesus, it said in Colossians 2, 3, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus alone is the wisdom that man needs in order to be saved. You can be ignorant when it comes to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and all the great men of the world, but if you have Jesus, you have everything that you need, all the wisdom that you need to be saved. Jesus alone can solve the unsolvable dilemma of how a holy God can welcome sinners into his presence. Jesus alone can solve the puzzle of causing all of your sin and suffering to work out for your highest good. Jesus alone can reunite your soul and your body at the resurrection. Loved ones, if you are perplexed, if you're confused, if you feel in the darkness right now, go to the King of Heaven. Just as the nations traveled many miles to go hear the wisdom of Solomon, go to Christ. He'll solve all your difficulties. He will answer the the dark parables that perplex you. Number three, Solomon built the house of the Lord. Solomon built the house of the Lord. This is what our text promises in 1 Chronicles 22.10 that it was Solomon who shall build a house for my name. Solomon spent seven years building this house. The building materials alone are beyond comprehension. In 1 Chronicles 22.14, we read that Solomon used 100,000 talents of gold. Now, a talent is 75 pounds. He used a million talents of silver and bronze and silver and bronze and iron beyond weighing, which means that Solomon used 7.5 million pounds of gold and 75 million pounds of silver to construct the temple. This religious edifice was the most spectacular one ever constructed. It was the temple in which God's special presence was mediated not only to Israel, but to all the nations. It was the most beautiful and most important building in human history. But Christ, 
Christ built a far more important, far more worthy and far greater beautiful building than Solomon ever did. What building did Jesus build? He built the church. The church of God, Hebrews 3, 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. 1 Peter 2, 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. That's what Solomon's temple pointed to, the, the, the true and better temple. And listen to how John in the book of Revelation grasps for language to be able to describe this. He says, The foundations of the wall of that city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Revelation 21, 19 and 24. Loved ones, Christ's church is more precious than 10,000 worlds. It's where the lamb himself dwells. It's the new Jerusalem. It's the glory of all the earth. Solomon's temple is long gone. It was destroyed ages ago in the Babylonian captivity. But the house that Christ built, the church, will endure past the age of the sun and the moon, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Oh, loved ones, you are that house. Christ is is still building us up for a temple for the Spirit to dwell in. Don't look at where you are. Look at where you will be. Fourthly, Solomon secured happiness for his people. Solomon secured happiness for his people. When Solomon was installed as king... It says in 1 Kings 140 that there was rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. Now, unfortunately, the architecture of our building, it sucks all the marrow out of the sound when we're singing, right? But can you imagine that we sang so loud that the walls began to crack? That's the kind of joy that existed when Solomon became king. And if you think that's exaggeration, listen to what happened later on in his reign. Queen, queen of, the queen of Sheba came to him many miles away to hear. She heard reports of this great king. And when she visited him, it, the text says that her breath was taken away because she hadn't even heard the half of his earthly glory. 1 Kings 10.5. And when she could contain herself no longer... She said to the king, happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. 1 Kings 10, 8, and 9. Loved ones, she knew it to be an indisputable fact that Solomon's subjects were the happiest people on earth. But oh, how their happiness was but dust and ashes compared to being a subject of King Jesus. A Christian, a Christian is the happiest man in the world. He is happier than having great riches. He's happier than being world famous. He's happier than even the angels themselves. God did not 
have his son put on the flesh of an angel. He had his son put on the flesh of a man. Angels are not united to Christ, but Christians are. The Christian is the happiest man, not because he never has hardship, but because even in his hardship, his heart and soul belong to the king. This is why Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. Paul says elsewhere, to live is Christ, but to die is great gain. Because in death, we gain more of Christ. In death, we'll be just like the Queen of Sheba, who are no longer separated from our King by a faraway country, but will be in His very presence. Oh, the happiness of that day, when our very breath will be taken away because we will see Him as He is. We shall serve Him continually with praise, with shouting, with endless hallelujahs. Number five, Solomon was the supreme king of the world. Solomon was the supreme king of the world. Now, it's true that, properly speaking, Solomon was only king of Israel. But all of the other known kings in the world were his vassals. They were his servant kings that paid homage to him. In 1 Kings 4.24, it says that he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tipsa to Gaza over all the kings west of the Euphrates. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life, 1 Kings 4.21. So in other words, the kings did as it were bow down to Solomon. You thought about where that phrase, king of kings, first originated from. It originates from Solomon. He was the supreme king. He was the king of kings in the Old Testament. But oh, how greater King Jesus is. Solomon's reign ended, but of Christ, God spoke, he shall be my son. I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Loved ones, when Christ came into the world, he came to establish the eternal kingdom of God. I think we miss this oftentimes. Again, we have a tendency to emphasize one office over another, prophet, priest, and king. But what does Jesus say right when he comes into the world, right when he begins preaching? He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And this is bookend by the back end of his first coming. When he ascended into heaven, after he rose from the dead, his last instructions to the apostles were not just that he had authority in heaven, but that he had authority over all the earth. Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. 
And the Psalms are full of the description of the boundaries of this kingdom. Psalm 72, 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. I think it's a bit strange that evangelicals today are divided over this idea of Christian nationalism. I understand if that word nationalism is a bit of a trigger word in other countries and maybe even here, and perhaps there's a better label for it. But what's under the hood? What does it represent? That aside, what do we sing about every Christmas? We sing that Jesus came into the world and that all nations must receive him as king. This is the one time of the year where every evangelical, whether they like it or not, act like Christian nationalists. These are the songs that we sing. Just listen to the lyrics. This is from Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. He rules the world with with truth and grace. From the first Noel. Then let us all with one accord sing praises to our heavenly Lord that hath made heaven and earth of naught, and with his blood mankind hath bought. From hark the herald angels sing. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies with The angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Or from it came upon a midnight clear. For lo, the days are hastening on by prophets seen of old. When with the ever circling years shall come the time foretold. When the new heaven and earth shall own the Prince of Peace their King. And the whole world send back the song which now the angels sing. Or from angels we have heard on high, come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn King. So those are the five ways that Solomon, the greatest king in the Old Testament, pointed to Christ. Number one, he foreshadowed the peace that Jesus would bring to He foreshadowed the wisdom Jesus would possess. Three, he foreshadowed the house that Jesus would build. Four, he foreshadowed the happiness that Jesus would secure. And five, he foreshadowed the global authority that Jesus would possess. So let's look at our final heading, which is the true and better Solomon. We've seen how Solomon was like Christ. But there are three important ways that Solomon was very much unlike Christ. Three ways that Jesus is vastly different than Solomon. So first, Jesus was not a mere man. 
Jesus was not a mere man. Now, among men, Solomon was one of the greatest men of all times. But Solomon was entirely a creature. It's true that we do celebrate that Jesus was truly man. He had a true body. He had a true human soul. Jesus got hungry and thirsty and tired like a man. But he was so much more than a mere man. He was fully divine. Micah 5, 4, his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Colossians 1.19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Loved ones, at Advent, we're not celebrating the coming of a mere man. We're celebrating one greater than Solomon. We're celebrating the God-man, incarnate deity, the Word made flesh. Secondly, Jesus was not a mere king. Jesus was not a mere king. Can you imagine for a moment if the great Solomon did some of the things that Jesus did? Can you imagine him laying down his crown and going to live with common folk? With tax collectors, with prostitutes, with stinky fishermen. Can you imagine him taking off his royal robe and tying a towel around his waist and washing the stinky feet of his disciples? Can you imagine this king ever becoming a servant to his underlings? Never. You see, Jesus wasn't just the king of all kings. He was the servant of all servants. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did not come into the world to sit in palaces, to have trumpets be blown before his arrival. He came into the world to live with us as a brother, as a bosom companion, as a servant. Oh, the condescension, can you imagine, as he's talking with his disciples and he knows every single word they're ever going to speak and he serves them by communing with them. Can you imagine him bearing patiently with the Jews while knowing every stripe that they would lay to his back? Jesus was not just a king. He was the servant king, the king of kings and the servant of servants. Thirdly, Jesus was not a sinner. Jesus was not a sinner. Solomon grievously sinned at the end of his life. His many wives that he took for himself, turned his heart away from the Lord God. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, 1 Kings 11.4, by going after foreign gods, and he was spectacular at his sin. So much so that after his reign, God told him that he was going to tear the kingdom apart. But never a sin was found in our Jesus. Our king never abuses his power. Our king never lusts for more. Our king never strays in his heart in word or thought or deed. He's always fully true to the Lord his God. He always keeps his word. He always loves. He always speaks the truth. 
Jesus has never sinned, but he suffered as if he did. That's why he was born. He was born to suffer for our sins. He loved the church, Ephesians 5.25 says, and gave himself up for her. So then how do we apply how do we apply this to our lives? Well, first we, we see that we must celebrate this king. We must celebrate this king. Loved ones, when Jesus came into the world, he came into the world to the angels announcing his birth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Luke 2, 14. Dear congregation, we have an obligation to praise King Jesus, to kiss the Son, to give homage to him. There's no greater blessing, no greater happiness than belonging to his kingdom. If the queen of Sheba were here right now, she would certainly say, happy are you men, happy are you women, happy are you children who belong to such a king, who have been brought into his house, who have been adopted into his eternal family. If America falls into the dustbin of history, your true citizenship is not affected in the slightest You belong to the kingdom of Christ. You belong to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy, the kingdom of glory. So give praise to the Lamb of God. Give praise to the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Give praise to the King who is greater than Solomon. Secondly, we must take pains to make sure we belong to this king. We must take pains to make sure we belong to this king. The warning in Scripture is so clear that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's king. We must kiss the Son. We must pay homage. Otherwise, his wrath may soon be kindled and we will perish in the way. So do you belong to the king? Have you been born again? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom. If that's not you, then cry out to the king for mercy. Jesus promises that if we repent of our sin, that if we trust in his name, that he will welcome us in, that he will never cast us out. Whoever comes to me, he says, I will never cast out. Thirdly, We must labor to extend the king's dominion on earth. We must labor to extend the king's dominion on earth. How do we do that? Well, by using the means that Christ has given us, word and sacrament. For 2,000 years, the kingdom of Christ has been spreading around the world. How? By word and sacrament. It's actually working And therefore, we ought to be laboring to raise up other churches. We ought to be laboring to send out laborers into the harvest. What a joy that we get to send out Pastor Luke to exercise word and sacrament in another church. We ought to be planting schools. We ought to be informing the magistrate of what his duty is before Christ. Come to the psalm sing. 
We're going to be singing in the building where lawmakers make laws in the state of Idaho. We ought to be raising up our families in the fear and admonition of the Lord. If the church is the house of God, then the little cells that make them up are families. Religion starts in the home. Fathers, raise up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And all the while, we pray that God would bless our efforts. That's how Christ's kingdom is spread. Finally, we must comfort ourselves. We must comfort ourselves. Children, boys and girls, suppose that we were to meet a child whose father was a mighty prince. And this father was very powerful and very wealthy, and he loved his child very much. But the child said something like this, I'm so alone in the world. I'm lost. I'm poor. I'm without aid. I don't know what I'm going to do. What would we think? What would we say to that child? You're crazy. (laughs) I mean, they'd be out of their mind. We might say something like this, dear child, don't say such things or I'm going to tell your dad. But how often do Christians do the same thing? How often do we, we look at our life, all the while our, our, our king has the, the cattle on a thousand hills, the very locusts are his army, the winds and the waves obey his voice, and yet we get into a little trouble and we lose our minds. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Dear friends, don't make me tell the king on you. Solomon gave the queen of Sheba everything that she desired. When she came and visited him, 1 Kings 10, 13 says that the king didn't withhold anything that she wanted. Will not your Jesus, who is infinitely holier and infinitely wiser than King Solomon, do so much more for you? It's a greater to lesser argument. If God did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, the great thing, how will he not also with him graciously give us all other things? That's the lesser thing. Comfort yourselves, loved ones. You don't belong to a selfish king. You belong to a king who came into the world to die for your sins. You belong to a king who came into the world to bring you back to God. That's why this spectacular son was sent into the world. That's what Advent is about. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all of the spectacular sons that you sent into the world to save it. Lord, we know that all of them have, have failed. We know that we have failed. We know that even when we resolve to do better, we fail before you. We thank you, Lord, that your son, the true king, has not failed. That he was born to come and live for us, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again from the dead.
and that he is now sitting at the right hand, reigning over planet Earth. We thank you that we are children of this great king. So help us, Lord, not to be like that poor little child who reasons wrongly with himself. Help us to look to King Jesus, who has everything that we need, all wisdom, all power, all joy, all hope. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen.